Welcome to a great day for hockey talk with your host, Paul Steigerwald. Paul Steigerwald standing by with his special guest. And let's go down the ladder right now and join him. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk. I'm Paul Steigerwald. If you're old enough to have been a Penguins fan in 9091, you have a firsthand appreciation of Badger Bob Johnson's personality and the lasting impact he had on the attitude of the Penguins organization in a very short period of time. If you're an older Penguins fan and remember vividly the 1980 miracle on ice at Lake Placid, you were probably very proud of the Penguins' 1977 third-round NHL draftee named Mark Johnson, who helped the 1980 Olympic team defeat the Soviets and ultimately win a gold medal by turning in an MVP performance. Within a matter of days of that historic accomplishment, a very proud father, Badger Bob Johnson, escorted his son Mark to Pittsburgh to join the Pittsburgh Penguins to begin his NHL career as a decorated sports hero. In his first NHL game on March 2, 1980, the Penguins and New York Islanders skated to a nothing-nothing tie. Johnson showed some promise in nearly three seasons in Pittsburgh, but apparently not enough for the Penguins to patiently wait for that promise to be fulfilled. He was traded in 1982 to Minnesota for a second-round pick who ultimately turned out to be a player named Tim Herinowich. He played only 55 games for the Penguins. Johnson would eventually go on to the Hartford Whalers, where he had two 30-goal seasons, and later in his career, he scored 10 goals and 18 points in 18 playoff games for the New Jersey Devils in their 1988 playoff run. Today, Mark Johnson is the coach of the University of Wisconsin women's hockey team, where he has been since 2002. He's won four national championships there. He also coached the U.S. women's team to a silver medal at the Olympic Games in Vancouver in 2010. When you hear his voice and his passionate philosophy in the game of hockey, it will stir echoes of the man who coined the phrase, it's a great day for hockey. For young fans, our conversation will provide a firsthand appreciation of what makes the Johnson legacy so powerful. And now, our conversation with a former Penguin and hockey miracle worker, Mark Johnson. First of all, your impression, a lot of people have seen the movie Miracle. I wonder what you thought of that movie. Did it catch the spirit? of the championship, the gold medal? I think the, yeah, the spirit of the movie uh, was, I think, you know, pretty accurate in regards to, you know, how we got together, how we developed, uh, you know, as a team and how we grew as a team and, uh, you know, really gave us an opportunity to be successful playing for one another. And so there certainly were some scenes that were twisted a little bit, changed a little bit, uh, endings were moved around a little bit, but I think the overall theme uh, of the movie as far as, you know, the willingness to play together as a group and play for your country uh, was portrayed pretty well. How did you feel Eric Peter Kaiser portrayed you? Well, he's way better looking than I was, so <laughs> they picked the right guy for that position. Uh, but it's interesting because uh, uh, most of the players that played, uh, you know, the, us as actors, uh, you know, knew how to skate and uh I thought that was a real bonus. So, you know, the gentleman that played me actually played junior hockey up in Nanaimo in the British Columbia Hockey League and, uh, you know, understood hockey, obviously, played at a level. So I think that, uh, you know, really helped. And when they did the scenes in the movie that, you know, the guys actually knew how to do things on the ice. And uh, it was fun to get to meet them, you know, at the premiere out in um, Los Angeles. And so they were excited to meet us, and we were certainly excited to, to meet them and, you know, to see – Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn there, uh, you know, really made it this special event. 
You had a great career at Wisconsin. Uh, you were Rookie of the Year in your league there. You're the first player to have your number retired by the university for hockey. And uh, well, there was a huge rivalry between Wisconsin and Minnesota. I just find it ironic that your dad made such a huge impact on the Penguins as coach. And then uh, several years later, Herb Brooks was the coach of the Penguins. And those two were such rivals that people used to say they hated each other. Is that is that a, a, an accurate characteristic of the way they – or characterization of the way they felt about each other? Well, I think, you know, they probably, better phrased, you know, probably didn't get along, uh, you know, their approaches to how they handled teams and how they went about uh, coaching uh, were a little bit different. Uh, and so I think uh, one of the things that I think started to fuel that uh, competitiveness in both of them is that when my dad took over at Wisconsin, and then Herbie started coaching at Minnesota. You know, my dad obviously would recruit in Minnesota and had a lot of good friends uh, that he grew up with that were coaching a bunch of the high school teams in Minnesota. So my dad would go recruit these guys and bring them down to Wisconsin and then beat Minnesota, and that used to drive Herbie nuts. <laughs> he felt everybody that played in Minnesota you know, wanted to be a gopher and wanted to come to Minnesota. But uh, I remember my freshman year going up there for the first game uh, as a young 18-year-old freshman, and... Uh, didn't realize uh, the intensity of the rivalry, but uh, going out uh, for warm-ups, uh, you know, the language and the viciousness and the attacks uh, from the fans up there was like, wow, that really opened your eyes to how intense this rivalry was. And so it was, uh, it was heated, and I think that was probably one of the big reasons Herbie didn't, you know, didn't like my dad because he kept stealing his players. <laughs> and let me ask you this though: uh, Was it odd, like, for you? to then go from you know being coached by your dad as you were to then being coached by Herb in the Olympics and how did Herb treat you at that time Yeah I was concerned uh, you know I, I was after my junior year obviously was the Olympic tryouts and I didn't know uh you know how I was going to get treated where I was going to fit in the picking order was I going to make the team with Herb coaching it uh but I was coming off a good year. I was college player of the year that junior year, so I felt they had a pretty good opportunity to play there. But obviously when Herb was named the coach, uh, you know, obviously the things in the back of your mind are going to play. But, uh, you know, the first couple of weeks we were together as an Olympic team, you know, we were traveling over in Europe at that time, and Herb uh, had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with me and sort of, you know, set things the way they were, give me an understanding of where I fit in the team and uh, some of the responsibilities that he felt that I needed to know about. And it certainly made me feel at ease because I knew I was going to be on the team then and I knew I could just go out and play hockey and concentrate hockey and forget about all the other stuff that you know people might want to write about. So he eased that pretty quick and, and got me comfortable. How difficult was it to play for Herb? I know the, the image of it is to the general public that it would have been very very difficult day to day to deal with some of the things that he did but what was your feeling about it looking back on it and also kind of remembering what it was like to be in the middle of it yeah it was uh, one of those things that people that uh, you know when i ask them if they've seen the movie miracle and they have i says usually the movie and the miracle uh, has made her about to be a pretty nice guy yeah <laughs> <laughs> You know, he took a tough role, as you well know. You've been around hockey a long time. I think the toughest teams to coach are teams of all-star players. When you have the elite players, whatever group you're dealing with, so it happened to be you know, a group of college players, and they were the best college players that we had at that time in the United States. And I think any coach's challenge when you get these elite players on a team is how do you coach them? You know, you have a lot of people that have played – many different roles on their respective college teams and you know how are you going to fit them in and how they're going to become a team how they're going to be able to accept their roles on the team it might be different than what they had in college so 
he took a stern, you know, hard role with us uh, uh, as a group, uh, and uh, you know, wasn't friendly. Uh, you know, understood what he wanted to do as a coach and his vision of where he wanted to take us, and it was certainly challenging along the way. You know, every practice we have, every game we play. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen the next day, and he kept people on their toes. Uh, he brought people in at different times to, to challenge us as far as our positioning on the team. Uh, nobody was secure. I mean, he talked about uh, cutting Mike Garizioni and making him an assistant coach. I mean, there were a lot of things going on, and you can <laughs> oh, imagine, man. you know, you can imagine probably half our team, you know, it's like, am I going to make the team or aren't I going to make the team? And I think. We only got to relax a little bit. I think it was probably mid-January when finally, you know, a few of our players, you know, went up enough's enough, Herb. You know, we don't need any more guys coming, and we got we got the team we think that can be successful here. You know, no more shenanigans. And so, uh, at that point, uh, you know, he didn't bring any more players in, and you know, we became who we were. What role did Craig Patrick play in that whole uh, process of becoming more conciliatory in mid-January and the team settling in? Was he a good liaison, more or less? Uh, he was really the key. He was sort of the glue that I think kept everything together, even though, you know, there were chaotic days and, you know, we were traveling so much and, and together so much. It was like a family, and sometimes families feud and fight and do things. But, uh, you know, Craig was able to, you know, really keep things together if you had an issue, if you had a problem. Uh, whatever that may be with Herbie, with with something else, you know, he was a guy that you could go and actually talk to and have a conversation. And so without Craig being in that role and, and understanding and really keeping, you know, the glue to things to, together, uh, you know, it would have been a different outcome. Herbie's. Tell the fans what Herbie's are if they haven't seen the movie and what do you remember about Herbie's? Uh, we did those, and by the middle of that season, uh, we could do a bunch of them uh, <laughs> and won't get tired. So that was one of the things Herb, I think, in the back of his mind understood that, you know, if we were going to compete at this high level against either the Russians or the Czechs or the Swedes, that, you know, our conditioning level needed to be real high. And, uh, you know, we started to name these Herbies, and, you know, it's a skating drill after practice that, you know, lasts probably about 40 to 45 seconds. And, uh, we would do, you know, two and then four and then six. And then in the movie, in that game that we played against Norway, and we tied, uh, we did those Herbies for about 50 minutes after a game. So, so that really did uh, happen, eh? That did happen. It didn't hap- uh, end uh, actually the way the movie portrayed it to be. But, uh, you know, we did those Herbies, and uh, we did them for a long time. Uh, what the movie didn't show was that we had to play the same team the next day. And uh, we ended up, I think, winning 8-1 or 9 nothing. So... The message of uh, you know if you're going to play, you got to play hard and you got to be competitive and you got to do it every night and irrelevant of who you're playing against, uh, you got to give your best effort and uh, that message was uh, clear and loud. You sound so much like your dad when you talk. It's just it's just it's so <laughs> great. I love I love hearing it. I, d- I really do because I loved your dad and I think yeah. everybody in Pittsburgh who had any you know opportunity to work with him felt the same way. But. Um, you know, I just think it's interesting. Your dad was so enthralled with Russian hockey, with the Czechoslovakians. You know, he kept track of the drills they ran, their power plays. And and I wonder, um, you know, if uh, it kind of created even more of a feeling of awe for you of the Russians as you went into the Olympics. And just how in awe of them were you and your teammates? Uh, and how did you get over that? Well, I think... Uh... Yeah, I mean, you had to respect them, obviously, but uh, some of the things they were able to do on the ice and 
play as a unit and control the puck and control the play were just fascinating because if you hadn't seen him play, uh, you know, you, always, you were used to North American hockey. And I, uh, I remember in hockey schools back as early as 1972, after the 72 series between Canada and Russia, my dad had a 8-millimeter tape of that whole uh, documentary. And so from 73 to, you know, probably 78 or 79 uh, at our hockey schools, we used to watch that tape over and over and over and <laughs> get a feeling of, uh, you know, what the Russian hockey looked like, what the Russian power play looked like, and, and how good they were. And then I remember in 75, my dad was coaching the World Championships over in Germany, and I remember buying a plane ticket uh, with my mom and flying over and, and watching that tournament uh, as a high schooler and just fascinated with their training, their conditioning. Uh, they were able to play at such a high level, and then obviously when they dominated you know, the NHL All-Stars, uh, it was just part of my growing up. I mean, my dad obviously was coaching some world championships teams. He got, uh, you know, involved with watching Tarasov, the great legendary Russian coach, and how they trained and how they worked with their players. And so we had Russian power plays. We had Swedish power plays, Czech power plays. I'm sure he brought those to Pittsburgh when he's there, too, because uh, they were so good at it. Their skill level so high they could play for an entire period. So that was just part of Growing up in, in my dad's family was, uh, you know, the international game and understanding if you wanted to be a good player, there were certain things that you, you really needed to work on, and certainly the skill part of the game was a big component of that. So when you went into the Olympics, did you think you had a shot, you know, even though no, no one did? <laughs> I mean, I don't think anybody, you know, realistically would give yourself an opportunity. I mean, uh, you know, the year before they beat the NHL All-Star 6 to nothing, we were just a bunch of you know, college guys that uh, that were pretty good players but weren't on that level. And so, uh, you know, if we the week before we got to Lake Placid, we played the Red Army team, the you know, the, what ended up being their Olympic team, uh, in Madison Square Garden in front of a full house. And, uh, you know, we needed to bring our own puck that night because we didn't touch the puck too often <laughs> in that game. They ended up beating, I think, 10-2 to two or 10-3. to three. And so in the back of our minds was, wow, if we have to face these guys again, uh, you know, it's not going to be good. But as you well know, uh, hockey's a funny game. And uh, at any particular game, evening or any event, uh, you still have to drop, drop the puck and play. And, you know, we happen to play a different type of game uh, in Lake Placid that we did in Madison Square Garden. So I think in the back of our minds, uh, you know, we had good momentum going into that Russian game Friday afternoon. Uh, the whole key was it was not to get behind early uh, try to stay as close as we could for as long as we could and if you get the game into the third period or you get the game into the last 10 minutes of the third period you know you might have a chance but the whole key was to try to get to that point and Kel, tell us about herb's speech prior to the game the soviet game when he said you were born to be a player and all that was that uh what was that scene like in the locker room oh uh, it was it was good i mean you know again as a coach you're trying to push the right button, say the right things. And I think for that moment, you know, you know, we needed that. Obviously playing in Lake Placid in front of our home crowd is going to help us out. And then it's just a matter of you know, understanding that uh, at that particular point in our journey, you know, we were prepared uh, for this opportunity. Now, we're, we're going to be successful. I don't know, but we were prepared. I mean, our conditioning level, uh, you know, we had beat a great check team, uh, you know, a few days prior to that. We had a bunch of momentum on our hands. And so the excitement and the adrenaline that you're looking for from a coaching standpoint is there. And I just need to reaffirm 
that we have an opportunity here, and we need to go take that opportunity and run with it. And so, you know, we were born to be there for whatever reason. Uh, each of us had an opportunity, and, you know, let's go out and play hard. So the U.S. is trailing 2-1 near the end of the first, and you tied the score as time expired. Long shot, the easy save by Trediak, but Johnson is there and scores with one second to play in the period. Right now the clock shows nothing, but it was stopped at one when we looked up as the goal was scored. Right now it shows nothing as the period apparently has come to an end. But the United States has tied the game. A big, big goal for the U.S. team. Ken Morrow took a shot. From the other side of center right, or I'm sorry, it's Dave Christen, knowing that there was almost no time on the clock, but the rebound comes right out to Mark Johnson, who goes wide to track to tie it up. Tell us about that play. Oh, one of those where, you know, you play until the whistle, and, uh, you know, when uh, Davey Christian picked the puck up uh, in the neutral zone, uh, you know, he was moving down and knew he was, he was taking a slap shot, and it was one of those things that uh, you're just going to go hard to the net and, you know, sort of uncharacteristic of Tradiak, who was in the net at that time for the Russians, you know. Not sure if he knew how much time was left or he thought the period was over. He, you know, he left out a rebound, and I happened to be able to, to grab it and, uh, you know, put it in before time expired as I scored. Uh, you know, my first thought was, is there any time left? And, uh was it going to count? And obviously it did. And so the big thing was to go in the locker room, you know, instead of being down two to one, now you're tied two to two. And, you know, the mountain doesn't seem as high to climb when you only have to play for 40 minutes compared to 60 minutes against these guys because you knew how capable they were. So, you know, we went into the end of the first period really excited. And obviously when we came out to start the second period, uh, you know, their coach decided to make a goalie switch, and you know you end up uh, looking down at the end of the other end of the ice, and there's you know instead of Tradiak is in there, now you got Muskin in there, who was certainly capable of playing, but it was just a change in look, and, and uh, something that was uh, certainly talked about for a long time afterwards. Yeah, well, you went to New Jersey after you were in Pittsburgh as an NHL player, and Slava Fatisov was your teammate, and I heard a story where you asked him. About that, why did he pull? Why did he pull Tretjak? And what did he say? He says, "Coach, crazy." <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and and again, you know, coaches make decisions, uh, you know, because they think it's in the best interest of the team and and what the team can do to to become successful. And obviously, he did that to try to motivate his group because. You know, he sensed the energy in the building. He sensed, you know, in the second period they needed to do something. And, again, they came out in the second period. We didn't have the puck very much. And uh, at that point, uh, Jimmy Craig, you know, kept us in the game and, you know, gave us an opportunity to win. Even though we were down 3-2 to two after the second pr- period, uh, you know, we still felt pretty good about where we were. Yeah, and you got the tying goal in the third. So two gigantic goals that you scored, Mark, in the I just remember the insanity in the crowd and everything, and you know, you you were fortunate enough to be playing, you know, in your home country. So the, I don't know, the atmosphere was just awesome. It was a real home ice advantage, but that tying goal was something. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, as, as the third period started, I mean, we needed to score the next goal to, to you know, make sure that uh, they didn't get away from us and. You know, we were at the end of a penalty. Uh, you know, again, you get a little bit of a break where a puck goes off one of their defender skates and gets onto my stick, and the next thing you know, it's in the back of the net. And, you know, not only were we excited, uh, the crowd was uh, euphoric. The final rush on this power play opportunity. 13 seconds left in the penalty. They chop the game.
absolutely came out of nowhere. The U.S. team did not seem to be threatening. The puck went to Starikov, the Soviet defenseman who should have had very good control of it, but he lost it. There's Silk. Now watch the puck go to Starikov. He's in good shape with it, but he loses it right on the Johnson stick and in the net. Really, before anybody could sit down and, and you know continue to watch the game, you know Mike uh, scores not too long after that, and that's when you really understood what noise sounded like uh, and meant uh, in a crowd because I thought the roof was going to come off because all of a sudden you look at the you know at the scoreboard it's four to three. Unfortunately, between the four and the three, there was uh, the time was ten minutes to go in the game, and it's like oh boy, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah, probably seemed like hours, but. Oh, it just, yeah, it just sort of went slow. That's like sort of on time stopped. You know, you'd go out for a shift, you'd come back, and, you know, there'd be 40 seconds out. Boy, now we got nine minutes, and just kept winding it down. But uh, at that point, uh, the crowd was into it, and certainly, uh, you know, we as players uh, understood what was going on and understood that, you know, our conditioning and all the skating uh, that we had done throughout the season, that was the moment that we needed to be uh, in in, in good shape because at that point we could skate with the Russians. We could match their speed and we could, uh, you know, eliminate them from getting scoring opportunities and get ourselves down to the end. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to show. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! You guys won that game, and a lot of people think you won the gold medal that night. Uh, then you did. You had another game to play. Uh, how was it uh, in terms of trying to get back up again for another big game when you had done that? Well, that's, yeah, I give Herb credit. You know, as a player, you don't uh, understand what a coach is going through at that point. You've got a, you know a big upset. Uh, you got a day off. Uh, you know, you have an opportunity uh, to play for a gold medal. How do you bring everybody down and, and get them refocused? And so, when we went to practice uh, that Saturday. Uh, Herb was probably in the worst mood he was all season uh, just because he understood that you know if we screwed up Sunday that you know we would uh, regret it the rest of our lives and so you know we had a firm practice on Saturday uh, you know he brought us back down to the point where you know we needed to understand that uh, you know come Sunday when the puck dropped we needed to be ready to play and had to somehow forget uh, with a short memory that uh, our game Friday was fun and it was enjoyable but we needed to get through that and over it uh, before we played Finland, uh, we weren't very good listeners because after two periods against the Finns, we were down two to one. But I think, you know, as I remember, you know, sitting in the locker room after the second period uh, and getting ready to go out for the third period, there was this sense of confidence within our room that uh, you, we knew we were going to win. We just didn't know how we were going to win. We had sort of come that far and understood what we were up against. And Herbie had, you know, just a short message for us. And I think everybody in the locker room knew that uh, we were going to go out and win. And, you know, we went out and Phil Vercota scored a goal early in the period. Uh, I set up Robbie McClanahan and then scored shorthanded late. And, you know, the rest is history. You were really something else, Mark, in that uh, in that tournament. You, you played some great hockey individually and, of course, as a team. And uh, did Herbie really say you'll take it to your grave if you don't win this uh, game tonight? That's yep, a- he said it twice. And after he said it the second time, he just walked out. And, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, it sinks in because at no point in your life were you going to get an opportunity like this again. 
and you certainly didn't want to screw it up. But, uh, again, we were prepared for that opportunity, and you know, probably that third period against Finland was our best period of the entire tournament. You had been drafted by the Penguins in 1977, so you know everybody knew that when the Olympics were over, a lot of the players who were playing on that team and had been drafted by NHL teams would be going to their respective teams. And it wasn't too long after you won that you were in Pittsburgh putting on a Penguins jersey and playing against the New York Islanders who had – the great Ken Morrow on defense, who you had played with on that Olympic team. What do you remember about how quickly you had to kind of transition from all that excitement and glory to now just uh, getting into the National Hockey League and getting your feet wet in, a, in the best league in the world? I think the biggest challenge was, uh, you know, we didn't have cell phones. You didn't have all the communication tools we have today. So, you know, when we left Lake Placid, we ended up flying down to the White House and having lunch with uh, the president and then getting back to – you know, you respected hometown. So I went back to Madison uh, mon- late Monday night, and I think Thursday morning uh, ended up flying down to Pittsburgh and uh, getting situated down there. And so I didn't realize what was going on everywhere else other than where I was. And so I remember getting off the plane in Pittsburgh and coming through the tarmacs, and all of a sudden there were like, you know, a gillion cameras and TVs and reporters. And I'm like, what the heck's going on here? And so, obviously, it was big news that we didn't know about in a lot of areas uh, just because we didn't have the technology to, to know what was going on outside of where we were. So uh, it was uh, it was very uh, humbling. It was uh, intense. Um, there were a lot of things going on. It was like being in a whirlwind because, you know, you, you don't anticipate any of that happening. Uh, one, winning the gold medal, and then two, getting an opportunity, you know, five or six days later to put an NHL jersey on. And I remember the, how receptive the crowd was uh you know during that game uh you know obviously with kenny on the ice and me on the ice uh it was special and and certainly uh you know the remainder of the season was a learning opportunity for me and the nice thing i had uh a bunch of veteran players on that team that i first started with that uh you know helped me out a great deal as far as understanding uh you know, what it was to be a pro, how to become a good pro, and if you wanted to be in this business for a while, there are certain things that you had to be able to do. And so certainly thankful that uh, I had great leadership uh, amongst the group that I first started with. You were pretty tight with Greg Malone, were you not? Yeah, we lived uh, not too far from each other. We used to ride in uh, quite a bit to, to practices and games. And uh, and so, uh, yeah, in fact, one of my sons, my oldest son, Doug, and uh, Greg's second son played a little junior hockey later on in life after we both left Pittsburgh and started families and doing that thing. So, yeah, I've uh, had a good relationship there. And, uh, again, uh, you know, you look at Ross Lonsberry, Oris Kinderchuk, uh, you know, you talk about Randy Carlisle, guys that I first started with that, uh, you know, were good pros that had won, been uh, there a long time in the NHL and uh, certainly helped me out because, the hard part for me was coming into a, uh, obviously a, a new team for me, but when I went on the road or we'd go into different venues, uh, you know, whether you had a good game, a bad game, most of the porters uh, that spring wanted to talk to me, and uh, I was completely uncomfortable with that because I'm looking at these guys that have been in the league for a long time and had great success, and uh, it was a really uh, uncomfortable uh, situation because I was just trying to get my feet wet and get an understanding what the NHL was all about, and yet. Uh, had the responsibility to talk about the Olympics. Do you think your teammates understood, though? I think they did. I think, uh, you know, whether you're you're Canadian or you're American or, you know, just a hockey fan, uh, 
you know, you look at that story and understand, uh, you know, the odds that uh, were against us, uh, I think it just puts a smile on your face because I think you know, a lot of people uh, that are involved in sports like to see those type of endings. We don't see them very often, but when they do happen, you certainly appreciate them. You were traded to Minnesota for a second-round pick, which uh, was Tim Horinowich. He never played many games in the NHL, and I look back on it now. I think that wasn't a very good trade for the Penguins, but were you disappointed when you were traded? Well, I remember sitting at breakfast uh, that morning, and all of a sudden the phone rings, and uh, you know it's the GM, and you want, you want the good news or you want the bad news, and all of a sudden you're traded. And I think it really hit home as far as the business side of what pro hockey is all about. Uh, Obviously, going to Minnesota, you know, where I was born and, you know, familiar with, that's where I spent the, the year with the Olympic team. Uh, there were a lot of positive things there. You know, I was a little disappointed, uh, you know, that you do get traded. But as I always looked at them, I had gotten traded a few more times after that. You know, one door opens and, and one door closes. One team doesn't want you, the other team does. So as I learned uh, as a youngster and had a, you know, a dad that was generally positive, uh, you know, you just you look at the positive side of it, move forward and, Again, you're, you're you're trying to you know make as long a career as you can out of it, and here's this new opportunity, and and go try to make the best out of it. I want to ask you about your dad some more, Mark, but I want to ask you about your mom because uh, Martha was a real character and a great person to have uh, in the Penguins' uh, uh, inner sanctum there during the course of that that year when your dad was coaching the Penguins, and then afterwards she's remained a kind of a uh, sympathetic figure, I think, uh, in, in the history of the Penguins, but. Was she the consummate hockey mom? Uh, ultimate mom, and then, uh, you know, probably, you know, my dad's biggest cheerleader. Uh, you know, whether she rang the cowbell here at the Coliseum where the Wisconsin men used to play and try to get the crowd fired up. Uh, and so now she's become my biggest fan. She'll she'll attend my games and, you know, still yell at the referees and get into it like <laughs> she did in the old days. But, uh you know, when you grow up uh, and your husband is a is a hockey coach and uh, you know spends a lot of time at the rink and you know builds a program here at Wisconsin, uh, you obviously are going to be a, a big part of that because you know that's what you do twenty four seven. And then you know you have a a family and you know the family gets involved in hockey with uh, with their kids and so it's uh, it was a you know a, a great relationship. Uh, you know they uh, they obviously got along extremely well and. Whether it was here at Wisconsin or Colorado College when uh, he first started coaching in the college ranks, or when he went to Calgary for five years, or you know the short time he got to spend in Pittsburgh, you know she was uh, you know sort of the the rock uh, that kept things together, obviously with the family, but certainly uh, kept my dad in check uh, and uh, kept him grounded too. What was it like having uh, a dad for a coach? A lot of times it doesn't work out so well. Uh... For, for young guys whose dad is also the coach. But in your case, uh, it seems like you, you had a great working relationship with your father. Could you describe what it was like when you were younger, though, and he was this coach and you were trying to become a good player? I think, uh, you know, it was an advantage uh, because, you know, I, I got to surround myself. I got to rub elbows with. I got to go on the ice with, uh, you know, a lot of good players that uh, played at Wisconsin uh, that went on to play in the NHL and, Got an opportunity to uh, you know see how uh, how to become a good player. You know, I got to you know be a stick boy, and so I sort of got this uh, 
education in hockey one-on-one from a real young age, uh, you know, by a guy that was, uh, I call, sort of a master teacher. You know, he has Ph.D. in hockey and his teaching ability, and so I got to watch that every day and, you know, certainly uh, created a passion in me to, to play the sport and then you know, try to excel at it. And so I was fortunate from that standpoint to, to see things firsthand and get an opportunity to, you know, grow as a player because of what I was able to grow up in. Did he say a great day for hockey in your house or in your midst before he came? Uh, if he wasn't saying it, he just lived it. Uh, <laughs> and it, I always go back to when he first came to Pittsburgh, and now he's coaching, you know, Mario, and he's got Yager coming in, and, you know, he's got these world-class players, Hall of Fame players, and, and yet his approach when we did these hockey schools during the summer and was dealing with a – seven and eight year old who had his you know gloves on backwards or didn't have his skates quite tight enough uh, he had the same enthusiasm with those type of kids uh, and he just he just loved uh, you know working and he loved to be challenged and i think that's one of the reasons he ended up leaving you know wisconsin to you know to go up to calgary and uh, you know challenge himself to see if he was you know able to you know have success at at the highest level in the nhl and uh, you know, then you start thinking about what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And, you know, he had this position with USA Hockey that he tried to tap into. And, you know, after a couple of years doing that, uh, he got back to his first love. And, uh, you know, it was it was coaching. And uh, I give Craig Patrick uh, a lot of credit because, he obviously, he was a GM in Pittsburgh at the time. And he talked my dad into, you know, giving up his role there at USA Hockey and coming back and coaching. And I remember when he decided to take the job, uh, he was about as excited as I'd ever seen him. Uh, the only other time I saw him probably more excited was, uh, you know, the night he ended up winning the Stanley Cup and was hoisting it and, you know, saw that smile on his face. Were you there? I'm trying to remember if yep. you were. Yeah, yep. you were. Yep. Yeah, we, yep. yeah, we were there in, uh, in the locker room, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was fun to follow and uh, certainly uh, – you know, as you well know, uh, when you hoist that cup, uh, it's sort of just that's the top of the mountain. And, uh, you know, usually the expressions on the people that are hoisting it is something special because a lot of us know how much work it goes into it. You're never guaranteed you're going to get that opportunity to hoist it. But then when you get that chance, it's just uh, something that's really cool and special. What does it mean to your family, Mark, to have the Penguins still using that slogan, it's a great day for hockey? And I believe that that slogan will be eternal. I don't think the Penguins will ever forget it or ever stop using it, and why should they? It's just a phenomenal summation of how we should all feel about the game, and and it also is a great tribute to what your dad did for this organization. Yeah, and it's just a tribute to you know someone that uh, truly did that and uh, you know did it his entire life, and you know obviously impacted a lot of people, impacted you know some communities, but certainly impacted the game in a real special way. So you know you see that saying there. You see somebody talking about it, uh, you know, it just it makes you feel happy that uh, somebody was able to, you know, do something for a great game that, uh, you know, people can enjoy for, you know, ever and ever because it is a game and, you know, if you do it the right way and enjoy it and uh, take some things away from it that we all have taken away from it, uh, you know, it's it's worth all the sacrifices and things that people have to go through. It's a great game and I think everybody, you know, at the bottom end of it, you know, should think about how you enjoy it. And uh, it's playing it, it's watching it, it's coaching it, it's teaching it, it's announcing it. Uh, there's so many facets of the game that people can take away and enjoy from it. And certainly when you wake up in the morning, I know it's 10 below here in Madison today, and but the sun's out and I got practice in a few hours, so it really is a great day for hockey. Mark, that's great stuff. Uh, 
You know, you talked about the happiness uh, your dad had when he won the cup. I also think of the word pride because there's a there's a shot of the team on the ice where they gather for the for the photo, and your dad's standing there, and there's a the, the camera for whatever reason zooms in on your dad, and it's a look of such pride, like he's looking at his players and he's thinking, these guys are awesome. I can't believe we accomplished this as a group. And he could just see that he was brimming with pride. That's that's the word, just written all over his face. Yep. I mean, that's sort of the, you know, as a coach, the, the ultimate uh, view you can take where, you know, you've worked with these players for this period of time. Uh, you know, they've sacrificed, uh, you know, there's things that have gone on that, uh, you know, people outside the organization don't know. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it, and it's such a challenge and so difficult to, to accomplish the end of it. And, and when you do, I think from a coaching standpoint, it's just a satisfaction that uh, is really tough to describe. You probably can see it more than you can describe it, and that's probably what you're seeing in that footage where, all the things that he had talked about over the course of the season, uh, the challenges they went through with uh, with injuries, with line changes, with trades at the the last minute. I mean, all the things that go into trying to put that puzzle together. It's just like all of a sudden, here's this puzzle, and the picture's bright and it's clear and it's awesome. Sure is, Mark. And uh, before you go, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about your coaching and the fact that it's obviously in your blood. It is. I mean, when I got done, uh, you know, playing after my dad passed away, I ended up, uh, you know, coming back to Madison. Uh, I'd been playing over in Europe for a couple of years and just felt it was time to to move on and, uh, you know, start my career other than playing hockey. And so, uh, you know, when push came to shove, I decided, well, I'm going to give coaching a couple of years and see where I go and see where it takes me and see if I enjoy it. And, uh, you know, that was a long time ago, so I guess I must enjoy it. I like it, and hopefully I'm pretty good at it. And you're coaching, and you're coaching women, which is really interesting. And I wonder if there's a difference. Like, uh, is it? Do you feel like there's a different way you have to approach your players than you would say if they were men? Uh, I think the only difference is probably your communication style. I think with with women and, and men, uh, your ability to communicate have to be a little bit different. Uh, I think with the women, there's always this why component, as I call it. Where if I'm going to describe a drill, we're going to do something. I I need to add. Well, here's why we're doing it, and you know, then it's okay. But from things on the ice, uh, it's more uh, to me uh, those things that I learned at a young age. Uh, not only from my dad, from you know, as a young player myself, is the skill part of it. And, you know, we got to be able to skate well. We got to be able to pass. We got to do the skills part of the game well. And if I can do that with a group of players. You know, then I have a pretty good chance to be successful. So it's been 18 or 19 years, and I've been fortunate to, you know, do some things with the players that I've had to give them an opportunity to play at the highest level. And for the women, that's in the Olympics. And so, you know, last Olympics, uh, I had nine. I think nine of our former players had a chance to play for either Team Canada or Team USA and get that ultimate thrill of putting that jersey on and representing your country in the olympic games obviously u.s won the gold medal last time around and the canadians won the silver but for all of them they got a chance to play in the olympics so from my standpoint as a coach uh that makes you feel real proud man that's just incredible and you won the silver in vancouver and now your team at wisconsin is (laughs) they never lose i know you had a split with minnesota here a few weeks ago but uh looks like you're headed to big things 
Well, we're moving. We've got the second round of our playoffs coming up. And uh, as you well know, at this time of the year, you know, if you win, you, you get to see another day and another game. Uh, if you lose, it's disappointing, and you have to wait till next year to play another game. So all the preparation, all the hard work, uh, at the same time, it's it's the most enjoyable part of the season. I remember when I was in the NHL uh, uh, and different teams that I played for and the different runs that we were on. Uh, there was nothing better than playoff hockey. I mean, you just eat, sleep, and play hockey, uh, you know, for uh, a month. You might play for two months, uh, but it's just the best. Yep, and you scored 10 goals for the New Jersey Devils in that run in 88. Good run it was with Sean yeah, Burke in there. Yeah, I ended up getting four in one game against Washington, and my uh, center that uh, game, Patrick Stunstrom, tied Gretzky's record because I think he had three goals and five assists, and they had eight points that night. Uh, and again, uh, you know, it, it's fun to watch the playoffs. It's it's fun to see the intensity of the game go up. It's fun to watch the crowd and the overtimes and just the thrill of uh, of watching uh, such a great game. Do a lot of people attend your games at Wisconsin? Uh, this year we were sold out every game. Every game uh, for the first time in our program's history, we seat about uh, a little over 2,400. And, uh, yeah, it's usually a tough ticket to, to get right now. So they must enjoy uh, what they come to watch and uh, certainly proud of that because, uh, you know, we've got a bunch of fans. They enjoy watching the games, and the players love playing in front of them. Yeah, and now it seems women's hockey is getting a higher and higher profile all the time, right? It is. I mean, you, you know, you watch the uh, NHL All-Star game and uh, Brianna Decker, who played for me, uh, you know, a while back, uh, had a chance to get in the skills competition. Uh, you know, Kendall Coyne, uh, who ended up uh, skating around the ice uh, as fast as anybody skated on the female side, was fun to watch. So the exposure's out there. Uh, the nice thing is, as we were able to sell hockey on the women's side here, is you know you challenge people uh, to come and watch a game. If they like it, uh, they're probably going to come back. If they don't, they won't. But uh, I think once people see the high level these women are able to play at, uh, they enjoy the game. Mark, I was there with the Penguins. I came uh, to the Penguins organization in March of 1980. Ooh. And uh, so I got there uh, not long after you did. And uh, I remember a big dinner the Penguins had. Russ Anderson was there. You got up and spoke about your Olympic experience at that time on behalf of the, the or, you know, with the organization all there. It was really, really interesting, captivating, actually. And, uh, you know, I, I just can't say enough about how much the Johnson name has been to the Pittsburgh Penguins. And, uh, you know, I, I know I speak for everybody who follows the Penguins that uh, your dad is a beloved figure. And just hearing your voice reminds me of him so much. And I know everybody will say the same thing. And I'm so happy for you to have had such a, a great career as a coach and a very successful career as an NHL player. And, of course, next couple of years, a uh, celebration of a 40-year anniversary of the gold medal. And then the year after that, a celebration of the 30-year anniversary of the uh, first Stanley Cup for the Pittsburgh Penguins. We would love to see you back in Pittsburgh uh, at That'd some point. That would be awesome. Yep. Sounds good. Appreciate the time. You choose. Four years talking about the real world or four years immersed in it. After a hands-on, career-focused education, Point Park graduates enter the workforce prepared to succeed. Professionally designed. That's the point. Point Park University. Downtown Pittsburgh. PointPark.edu. I didn't realize it at the time, but my interview with Mark Johnson occurred on March 4th, which happens to be Badger Bob's birthday. He would have been 88. Mark has outlived his father by a few years, but thankfully, Badger Bob's spirit lives on forever in the hearts of millions of hockey fans. And it lives on in the person of his son, Mark Elnar Johnson. Around this time next year, we'll be celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice. One year later, 
the 30th anniversary of the Penguins' first Stanley Cup. Something tells me we haven't heard or seen the last of Mark Johnson in Pittsburgh. Thanks for listening to another episode of It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk. I'm Paul Steigerwald, and we'll talk to you next time.